Welcome to the Plutonomics Podcast with Lori Cammie and Barnaby Levin. The word Plutonomics means the study of wealth. It's our mission to educate, to help clients think about their goals and how they might benefit from working with an advisor to achieve them. But more importantly, it's to make sure our listeners understand both the pros and cons of any issue so they can make informed decisions and increase the odds of finding the right answer for them. You see, it's not who's right or wrong, but knowing there are no disinterested parties or unbiased opinions and that where you sit depends on where you stand. The challenge to making good decisions is to start by questioning one's assumptions and to break free of our prejudices because the truth usually lies somewhere in between. There are always two sides to every issue, both of which have merit. Last week, we began our series on alternative investments with a discussion of hedge funds. Today, we'll be discussing precious metals, focusing on gold for now, and some background and context about our global monetary system within which gold and other precious metals play a role. The history of gold as a medium of exchange goes back to 1500 BC, when the Egyptians began using it as a form of currency for international trade. And by 1200 BC, Croesus, the king of Lydia, created a coin called the shekel. It was an alloy of two-thirds gold and one-third silver, which before long was embraced by the entire Persian Empire. And since then, coins of various metals have evolved, but due to some of its more inherent properties in jewelry and industrial use, gold has become the more coveted store of value. The question is, how do we assess its true value and if there isn't some relevant correlation, for example, between the amount of gold and the amount of money in circulation. In All That Glitters, Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital said, gold is impossible to value in that it's like a religion. You're either a believer or you're not, and neither side can convince the other any differently. On the one hand, because there isn't any analytical way to value an asset that doesn't produce a cash flow, many feel gold is nothing more than a piece of metal or a rock. On the other hand, isn't that true of any number of other tangible assets, including raw land and art? Do we exclude them from consideration when it comes to asset allocation? Of course not. So we start with the fact that when it comes to gold, there's a limited or finite supply that creates some sort of scarcity value. And based on a growing global population, which in much of the world outside of the U.S. embraces gold as a store of value, that value is certainly greater than zero. Yes, gold is a tangible asset of which one can take physical delivery that's recognized and accepted worldwide. It's a finite resource that's becoming increasingly difficult to find and expensive to mine. It isn't subject to debasement or government manipulation, and it has served as a means of exchange in almost every civilization since ancient Sumeria. And since you quoted Howard, he also said that gold has no financial value other than that which people accord it. I couldn't agree more, but I also don't see how that's any different than virtually any asset class, including stock. Price earnings ratios, for example, expand in good times and contract in bad. So which is fair value? And isn't the stock market itself a kind of pyramid? 
I'm exaggerating, of course, but it is true that people have arbitrarily agreed that prices should rise or fall in line with earnings and that someone else will pay more for those earnings down the road, even though they have no control over the company. But unless they own more than 51% and the company's earnings flow directly through to their own income statement or the company pays a dividend, it's a form of gambling. So again, in a way, fair value of any asset is whatever the market is willing to pay at any given time based on almost any criteria that people choose to use to justify it, whether it's in and of itself or relative to some other asset, like the three-month treasury bill, whose yield we consider the risk-free rate of return. Well, I'm not sure I agree when it comes to stock, because when you buy a share of stock, one can project the stream of earnings of the company will most likely generate going forward, and the replacement value of the company's inventory, land, and buildings, its intellectual property, and dividends, which, as you say, it may pay. All of this value can be discounted back to a price today. And in the case of government debt, its value is based on the cash flow from the interest it pays and our faith that a government will stand behind its promise to repay principal in full. We believe this because of the power to tax and because they own the printing press. But that's the point. Even without an outright default, which has happened 29 times over the course of recorded history, we need to take this term repay in full with a grain of salt because for every dollar, yuan, real, and ruble a government prints, it reduces the value of all their other outstanding debt and enables them to repay that debt in cheaper dollars, rubles, and yuan. I simply find it hard to believe they're doing this innocently or in ignorance because it's in their own interest. Fair enough. Financial institutions have evolved through a trust-based model where they enforce the rules of record-keeping. They were created to standardize the exchange of value and to facilitate economic activity, starting with the central bank, whose governing policy in times of crisis may find it necessary to coordinate their activities, like our Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank did when Greece was on the verge of default. How can all of this be done without some institution controlling things at the top? Because, unfortunately, they enforce these rules in inconsistent and often unpredictable ways. And each generation of economists base their decisions on different criteria. During Bernanke's time, for example, he refused to even consider the Taylor Rule. John Taylor is a professor of economics at Stanford University. And under George W. Bush served as the Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs, and he believed that monetary policy should be determined according to a formula that would mathematically adjust funds based on the gap between the observed and targeted GDP and inflation, which is assumed to be 2%. The jury's out whether such a rule could actually work because it doesn't specifically account for sudden shocks like the housing crisis in 2008. But part of the reason Bernanke rejected it out of hand was because he felt such rigidity and transparency would lessen the power of the Fed. That is, he didn't feel everyone should know what they were doing ahead of time. Remember Greenspan and the infamous briefcase and all the attention Greenspan used to get each quarter on his way to Congress to testify? Exactly. Monetary authorities like central banks say they control the supply of money to smooth out business cycles ensure price stability, and minimize unemployment. They do this through open market operations in which they buy or sell short-term debt 
for central bank deposits, increasing or decreasing the supply of money in the system. Their hope is this will provide the incentive for commercial banks to, in turn, lend to their clients, who, we hope, will take that money and spend it. But central banks and governments all over the world have proven far more adept at increasing money supply and adding to their debt than they've been at reducing it. And they continue to borrow and spend with little concern for the fact that at some point this debt will need to be repaid. In the meantime, not counting our own unfunded commitments for things like Medicare and Social Security, U.S. debt is already $27 trillion. That's trillion with 12 zeros. Well, here's a question. Do you know what the average interest on that debt is? According to the Pew Research Center, as of last June, it's about 2.6%. That's $693 billion, billion with a B, in interest alone. And if that rate were to increase by just 1%, it would become a trillion dollars. For that context, in January of 2000, the average interest rate was twice that at 6.9%. With that much debt, starting each year that much in the hole, it would be relatively easy for a central bank to lose control, like Venezuela and Argentina have done again and again. Those interests are rare, of course, but we should never forget that in the years leading up to World War II, people in a country like Germany were buying groceries with wheelbarrows of paper money, and things got so bad, it opened the door for someone like Hitler to rise to power. But we've learned from these events, Barnaby, and we are at least talking about them. So it's unlikely to be one of those black swan events that you see come out of nowhere. And therefore, I'm a little less concerned than you. But I do understand what you are trying to say, I think, that just because inflation hasn't been a concern for more than 40 years, that that won't last forever. Many people have forgotten or are too young to remember that too much debt can lead to serious problems. And if, as we've said, the world has recognized gold as a sustainable store of value, it deserves a role in most portfolios. As well, perhaps, as Bitcoin. But that, I think, is a topic for next week. We hope listeners will tune in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family so they can enjoy it too. And if you have any questions, reach out to either Lori or me. This is Barnaby Levin and Lori Cammy for the Plutonomics Podcast, signing off. LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth are a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC, and advisory services through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the process or investment opportunity to reference herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and any investment opportunity referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable, and any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Neither LK Wealth and Asset Management, LCK Wealth, or Hightower shall in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to accuracy or completeness of the data for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. 
The data and information are provided as of the date reference, and such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth, and they do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.